episode 108 and I'm going to be talking about our featured species, one of my favorites, koa. I'm going to be talking about cherry hardwoods, cherry veneer, and then finally a little kind of sub-species feature on honey locust. So let's get into it. Um, first things first, I've spoken about plywood a fair bit on this show and specifically how the Ukraine war uh, Russian war is impacting the availability of Baltic birch and what could be possible um, alternatives, specifically alternatives made in North America. Well, I've spoken in the past about Guarnica and uh, the uh, products that they offer. Now, while not strictly North American made, they've actually released a PDF on the Russian impact on Baltic birch that's particularly interesting, a really nice informative PDF that uh, is well worth anybody using plywood should take a look at this. Um, it really explains a lot and kind of underscores a lot of what we've already talked about on this show. So I'm gonna include uh, a copy of that in the show notes. I'll also include links to it in all the places where this podcast gets disseminated that hopefully you'll get a chance to take a look at it. And if you're not familiar with the company and their line of products, it's just another one of those big plywood manufacturers that is worthwhile knowing. Other industry news, uh, this one definitely touches on my nerd side. The um, We've spoken in the past about cross-laminated timber or CLT timbers. Well, there is a company that just pushed out, I wanna say it was, it was either IWF or AWFS, I can't remember which show it was, but they debuted the use of AI, hey, there's everybody's favorite buzzword today, the use of AI to make CLT construction cleaner and greener. So imagine every time you through saw a log, you've got you know uh, two live edges on that log. Even if you remove the bark and the spongy cambium layers, you still have those live edges. Well, if you have to straight line rip both sides of that timber before you can laminate it together into a CLT timber, that produces a fair bit of waste. But if you can create puzzle pieces of those using those live edges to kind of match together closely mated pieces, you don't have to do that straight line ripping. Well, this company is using AI to essentially uh, catalog and piece together all of those live edge through sawn pieces to make cross laminated timber. And the numbers showing reduction in waste is on the order of 40% reduction in waste to produce CLT using more of a the proverbial buffalo, if you will. This is particularly excited. Now, certainly cross-laminated timber is its own kind of a burgeoning boom in the industry, but if it can make it using more and more of the material, therefore a lot less waste and a greater, already CLT is using a greater volume of material simply because it doesn't have to be uh, purchased and matched for necessarily appearance. It's all about structural grades. If there's less waste and less production required to get to the point where you're gluing up these timbers, that's pretty groundbreaking. So again, this was just, you know, early, early stages, but utilizing this software and this production system could dramatically improve production of CLT and I think bring it into more mainstream as a construction material. 
I'm excited about this one. Uh, definitely falls way outside of my scope of my day job. Even my scope as a you know hobbyist woodworker using fine hardwoods. But seeing uh, the boom in CLT, I think it's that's going to be amazing for the construction industry as a whole. Uh, let's move on a little bit. I've got some feedback from some previous episodes. I was just speaking about solar kilns and drying in general in my last episode. And at one point I had said, anybody who's running a solar kiln, let me know if you have any data on the numbers you're getting. So I got an email from Jet and he says, I've been drying wood in a greenhouse now for about two years. It's a typical hoop house with dual layers of plastic and a small area, excuse me, small air barrier from a vent fan infl uh, inflating the sheets. Ends are closed in and it's a pretty effective solar kiln. So I can confirm that you can, in fact, reach bug-killing temperatures in the summertime. He sent me a photo of the thermometer showing 130 degrees Fahrenheit um, inside the kiln. This is in um, uh, south-central Pennsylvania. It was a slightly overcast day, 84 degrees ambient, and the inside was 132 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, the high that day reached 140 and um, he was able to maintain that temperature. Oh, shoot, he doesn't have a number of hours, but this is all through the afternoon period. So he's figured out that if he loads his count in May to June and doesn't use fans, um, he can get that temperature up to 130 quite quickly. Uh, it's very easy to get to 115 without those fans within an hour or so. So um, by late fall into September, October, it's also easy to maintain that 130 degrees Fahrenheit. So the real question was never so much that can we get the temperature that high, but can you hold it long enough? And here's where the breakdown between producing lumber for uh, sale and producing lumber for your own use becomes the problem. If you're producing lumber for your own use, you're cool. Like a lot of etymologists, not etymologists, entomologists, <laughs> Bugs, not words. Entomologists will tell you that you can kill these bugs, you know, in three to four hours being held above 130 degrees. Commercially, though, in order to get a phytosanitary and to get a fumigation certificate, you have to hold that lumber for 24 hours straight above 130 degrees Fahrenheit. That's where the solar kilns have a problem. Because obviously when the sun goes down, the temperature starts to drop dramatically. And I guarantee you, you're not going to be able to hold 130. Well, <laughs> last couple of weeks in the East Coast, you might be able to hold 130 at night. But that's the problem. You're not going to be able to get that fumigation certificate, which means you will not be able to sell that lumber commercially if you're selling it as KD bug free. Can't do it. If you're using it for your own benefit or you're selling it to somebody saying, look, this was held at this temperature for three to four hours, you're probably okay. You're not going to be able to, um, to back that up. You, I would put it this way. Um, you would have to disclose to people that you do not have a fumigation certificate. Um, and if it were being used in commercial properties or being used in any kind of commercial development, you wouldn't be able to use that lumber. So again, maybe fine for your own purposes. It may be fine for selling to hobbyists and things like that if they're okay with it. But if they're saying, hey, has this been bug treated? All you can say is, yeah, I was held at this temperature for a couple of hours, but it does not qualify for a fumigation certificate. And this is the important part to bear is there are more and more people who are getting into sawing their own log, getting into drying their own material, and they start to get this excess of material that they then want to sell. It's very important that you disclose to your customers that it was not held at those temperatures 
for 24 hours and therefore it does not qualify for a fumigation certificate. Again, you may be totally fine but using that lumber and it may be bug free, but you can't say it, it's been fumigated or it's been heat treated because it doesn't meet the uh, standard or the minimum standards there. So there we go. Um, let's move on to the featured species because I'm excited about this. Folks who don't know, um, I grew up in Hawaii. Uh, well, I grew up a lot of places in Air Force Brat, but I spent some formative years in Hawaii. And really, when I think Hawaii, I immediately, when I think hardwoods in Hawaii, I immediately think of koa. Acacia koa is our featured species of the month. Koa is a wood that, well, I quite love. I have extensive experience working with it, but it's also a wood that I kind of hate because of some of the extensive experience I have working with it. Uh, when I was uh, working in um, IT sales specifically, I had, uh, I had just gotten a lathe and I remember making, turning pins out of Koa for my customers for Christmas that year. And those pins, I think I did about 25 the first year. Um, the second year, like word had spread. Second year, I made 311. Third year, I made over 800 pins out of Koa. So the good news was it was relatively easy to get pin blanks for Koa at the time, but I just was so sick of making pins uh, to the point where like it used to be that come October, I started turning pins to get ready for Christmas gift season for my customers. <laughs> so needless to say, I can tell you very well how the stuff turns. Um, the wood itself is absolutely beautiful. Um, I like to think of Koa as kind of like from a workability and appearance perspective, it's kind of like taking walnut and mahogany and crossing them. It's uh, kind of brown with some golden brown hues in it. Um, you can find some reds, um, some creamy type colors showing up in it. Um, depending on the finish you put over top of it, it can look very red like mahogany or it can look very brown like walnut. Structurally and workability wise, it is very similar to both of those species. Although the one thing you can say about the appearance of koa is the prevalence of figure is quite high. Like it's relatively, I'll put this in air quotes, easy to find curly koa because it is kind of by nature a curly species. Um, for the same reason that curly maple, you find a lot of curl in soft maple versus hard maple because the species itself is more prone to that type of figure. Um, we'll get into that in a future episode when we talk about figure a little bit more. So finding curly koa um, and, and figured koa is not as hard as you might think. So from a pin blank perspective, I could pack a lot of interest into a small piece. Um, Structurally, it has an interlock grain. So when you look at koa in a quarter sawn section, it has that ribbon striping that you might expect in something like sapili or even uh, genuine mahogany for that matter. You'll find minimal amounts of ribbon striping in genuine. Certainly in African mahogany, you will find a lot of ribbon striping due to the interlocked grain. Um, one fun fact about koa is it is one of those species that the heartwood does fluoresce under blacklight. I spoke about that in the past with black locust. Koa will do the same thing. Very, very cool species in that respect. But just 
because you kind of have like reddish woods and then you have like your white woods and then your brown woods, this falls kind of in the middle. And it really is an interesting palette choice if you build a piece of furniture or something out of it that you just don't find all that much. You've got a lot of design uh, flexibility with it in going leaning into that mahogany type thing or leaning into that walnut type thing just by choosing the type of finish that you put on it. Geographically, it grows in Hawaii and it really doesn't grow anywhere else. There have people who've, who've done plantations of it, but because of the, um, the commercial demand for this species not being nearly as high as some of the other species, it just isn't, it hasn't been lucrative for companies to go full-fledged into producing a, a plantation in a tropical clime where koa can grow. And it's not just a matter of tropical climes, but kind of mountainous tropical climes. And, you know, people think of Hawaii and they think of beaches, but Hawaii is quite mountainous. I mean, they're, they're volcanoes that thrust out of the ocean. So, you know, lots of, of higher altitude mountain slopes is where it really grows well. It's not growing down on the beach and it's not really growing in lowland rainforests. It's growing in a tropical climate on the side of a mountain. So that limits it pretty dramatically. If you were to try to create a plantation for koa, you're gonna be hard pressed to find the same type of topography, ecology, and climate that you will find in the Hawaiian Islands. So really, when you talk about geographic range, it is narrow, right there in Hawaii, the islands of Hawaii. Um, the grain structure is diffuse porous, but the pores are quite large. Now they're solitary, so you find a lot of meat in between the pores, but because the pores are quite large, its face appearance, this is where I, I lean into mahogany on its, on its appearance, it has more of an open grain feel and coarser texture to it like you would find with mahogany due to the size of those pores. The rays are very tiny. They're not invisible to the naked eye, but they're pretty dang close. So in a quarter sawn, you're not getting like big reflect like you would see in some other species, um, like certainly in oak, but even in something like maple and cherry, you're not going to get that same kind of um, striated look. The, the, basically, the rays are almost a non-entity um, as, as far as the appearance goes. Hardness, though, lovely, about 1100. So really, again, in that sweet spot, walnut mahogany, very easy to work with both machine and hand tools. I personally love working with it with hand tools because of that kind of perfect sweet spot hardness. Um, from a uh, MOR, MOE perspective, we're talking 12,600 and 1.5 mil. Again, very similar to walnut, a little bit higher than mahogany in that kind of structural side of things. Density, weight, 38 pounds per cubic foot. Again, right in that sweet spot for most of the common hardwoods. You're not going to find that it's dramatically different for most of the commercially available hardwoods. Here's the thing, though. Movement-wise, tangentially, we're talking 6.2, radial 5.5. So with a TR ratio of 1.1, it's very stable, very stable. The stuff doesn't move much at all. Probably one of the reasons that it often gets used for luthery. Now, from a tone wood perspective, that's one reason, but stability perspective, it gets used a lot for luthery. It also gets used a lot in cabinetry due to its stability. 
You're not going to have any issues with high oil contents like you will with a lot of tropical species. Again, because this grows on the mountainsides, it's it's kind of a dry, not very oily wood. So you don't have any issues with gluing or finishing or things like that. What it is probably most known for, though, is as a tone wood. Its density and hardness, go back to the tone wood episode, its density and hardness makes it a really great tone wood. And it is the species of choice for the ukulele but you will also find it heavily in use for a lot of solid body as well as acoustic guitars. And we'll talk a little bit about the Taylor Guitar Company um, in a little bit here. They have a big role in the future of Koa. As I said, uniquely easy to identify because the heartwood fluoresces under blacklight. Cost comparison, the stuff is expensive. Um, it's not really a commercially widely distributed species. It's used heavily in the luthery industry, but again, it's kind of a small subset when you compare it to a lot of the other industries. It's expensive though. Expect to, to pay more than most. Well, let's put it this way. It grows in Hawaii. So technically it is a domestic species for North America. It's probably safe to say that it's the most expensive domestic species. I'm sure you can find some examples of ones that are rarer, have you know a greater market demand for it, but you're going to pay, see the numbers change so dramatically, it's just expensive. Don't plan to buy a lot of this stuff. Plan to buy it for small accent pieces in a larger piece of furniture or buy it for smaller blanks like turning and things like that. Um, I personally just bought some solid wood four quarter material running about four to five inches in width and shorter segments under 48 inches. Um, I want to say it was about 14 or $15 a board foot. And this is recording as of um, uh, late August of 2023. That was a pretty good price because I was buying narrower amounts there. I've seen it go for $20 a board foot easily. The stuff I also bought, I specifically was buying in straighter grain. I wasn't going for curly and heavily figured looks. Um, once you get into the heavy curl stuff, the board foot price is kind of irrelevant and it's being sold as a highly figured wood and those prices end up being substantially more expensive. You know, if you were to do board foot calculations, you'd be in the 40 to $60 a board foot because it's a unique piece of lumber. I've spoken about this in the past, how once you get into figured material, you can't really price it by the board foot. It's priced by the by the stick, by the board, because of its unique nature. Same thing with slabs. They're unique in nature, so board foot prices don't really mean much anymore. Um, but as I said, uh, I've got a lot of experience turning it. I've built multiple boxes. I built several keepsake urns. <laughs> keepsake urn, that sounds kind of, uh, kind of redundant, but also a little bit uh, disrespectful. <laughs> Hopefully, if you're building an urn, it is a keepsake. Um, I built frame and panel doors from this stuff. Um, long ago, I built a wall hanging cabinet with curly coa rail and styles and ebony pegs. Really cool. Um, I've seen stairs built from coa before of a, a project that uh, we sold in Hawaii that used uh, curly coa for the stair treads. Um, very, very cool stuff. Alternate species, well, I've already kind of told you, walnut and mahogany both make good alternates. And with the right color finish, you could probably make walnut look a little bit like koa. The right color finish, you can make mahogany look a little bit like koa. What you're gonna be lacking is the interest in the grain. Koa, even if it is unfigured, even if it's more straighter grained, there's just more going on. There's more kind of wavy, curly uh, grain lines in koa, and you're gonna have kind of like 
undertones, kind of creamy highlights and kind of caramel undertones that you won't get from something very homogenous like mahogany or, of course, steamed walnut. Maybe unsteamed walnut would look similar to koa, but workability-wise, a lot of similarity there. Anything in the Sharia genus, I'm talking the Philippine mahoganies or the more generically known Luan mahoganies, are going to be very similar in workability, but also some of that kind of curly figure and creamy highlights in the Luan species, um, Sharia genus, you will find some similarities there. And I can't be more specific than that because Philippine mahogany is one of those brand names that has like 20 different species in the Sharia genus, and you're probably going to have difficulty buying it anything other than maybe Luan or Philippine Mahogany is the trade name, and you'll get a, a variety of stuff, but you'll find some similarities there. Likewise, there's a lot of woods in the Acacia genus that are going to be quite similar. Specifically, Australian or more appropriately Tasmanian blackwood is almost a dead ringer for koa. In fact, Tasmanian blackwood, that's Acacia meloxanin, if I'm pronouncing that right, meloxanin, something like that. Um, you're finding that a lot of people are actually selling that as an alternative to koa because it's more readily available. It's a wider geographic range. Um, although that may be debated and considering Australians um, hardwood logging rules, that may not be the case anymore. But, but at, as of right now, uh, Tasmanian or Australian blackwood can be found cheaper, probably 25% less expensive than koa. And certainly I have some Tasmanian blackwood and a koa in my shop right now. They are nearly indistinguishable um, side by side. If I didn't have them labeled as much, I would have difficulty. And this includes holding like a hand lens up to the ingrain. You will find that they were very difficult to, to tell apart. So yeah, obviously Tasmanian blackwood is a good alternative species to look at there. For me though, the workability and that kind of different color palette that Koa brings and the kind of craziness um, uh, diversity, we'll call it, in the grain just makes it kind of a refreshing taste from all of the cherries and walnuts and mahoganies and maples that you see furniture made out of. It's all white, brown, you know, or, or, or reddish wood. And this just gives you a mixture of things. It's very, very interesting. Highly recommend the stuff if you can get your hands on it. Um, but again, how available is it? And for a while there, Koa was really scary because of its very narrow geographic distribution. People were not getting the same quality and the prices were skyrocketing going through the roof. Enter Bob Taylor of Taylor Guitars. I've written in the past about his um, kind of lowering the bar of the grades of ebony when it comes to fretboards and things like that and guitars. And it's funny over the last 10 to 15 years, how pure black uh, fretboards uh, and then haven't necessarily fallen out of fashion, but how it's become acceptable to use other types of ebony with streaks of other colors and some creams and things like that on fretboards. That that's Bob Taylor. That's entirely his doing and showing just how much waste is going into producing all black Gabon ebony fretboards, how many ebony logs are left in the forest and, and just shining a light on that. And by Taylor, a major mover in the industry saying, hey, we're going to stop using all black fretboards and we're going to use more of the ebony. And now it's become you know more popular. 
Well, they've invested heavily in Africa. They've bought land. They've managed concessions now in Africa for a variety of species. They did the same thing in Hawaii. And there's some great articles I will actually link to. Um, granted, you know, full disclosure, these articles are written by the Taylor Guitar Company, published in a Taylor Guitar newsletter, but the facts and figures are there. They have invested heavily in land in Hawaii, um, and they have built a separate company that specializes in fostering the um, koa forests in Hawaii and, and fostering their future. And the future is quite bright. In fact, the availability of koa now is better than it was like 25 years ago. And they say 25 years in the future, they expect it to be even better than it is now. And this is really a phenomenal example of a very specific industry need, Tonewood, and in industry, the industry behind that, the luthiers saying, look, we've got to take control of this. We can't rely upon another industry to do this. We need to invest heavily and control that industry and build our future, or we're not going to have this wood for use as tone woods anymore. Certainly, it requires a lot of capital. It requires a lot of um, a visionary insight and the ability to, to not look so much at the bottom line and think, hey, let's invest this money and not get any return on it for 20, 30, 40 years. And this is what the Taylor Guitar Company has done. And I have certainly applauded, applauded Bob Taylor in the past. And it's not just Bob, it's his entire team of, of people. But this is a phenomenal story of a species with an incredibly narrow geographic range, yet this is not an endangered species, far from it. And through proper concession management and proper silvicultural management and, gen and, and even some genetic engineering, we are likely to see better koa in 25 years than we saw 25 years ago. And that's truly, truly exciting, which is why when I first thought I wanted to highlight koa, I thought, ah, you know, it's difficult to get, it's getting expensive. Do I really want to highlight a species that half my listenership might never be able to lay their, their hands on? And I think that that's not the case. If it's difficult to get now, I think you can expect that to get better in the coming years. And I'm, I'm hopeful, certainly, that it won't just be the guitar makers out there benefiting from this, but certainly Luthery and, and Tonewoods requires kind of best of the best type material. There's always going to be less than great material that will become available for furniture makers and cabinet makers and things like that. And I'm really hopeful that Koa can continue to be a mainstay, yet not commercially exploited type species. It's never going to outcompete some of the big commercial cabinet woods because of the fact that it does have such a kind of variegated appearance. And, and the, the big commercial industry is all about, you know, wood that all looks exactly the same, that basically it could be plastic. Koa just has a little too much character, I think, for the commercial cabinetry trade. But for the bespoke, for the one-off furniture maker, even the small run cabinet maker, Koa is going to pose um, a great arrow in your quiver for the future. And that's why I'm really excited to feature it as a featured species. And I'll just throw a little teaser out there for those Patreon supporters that are getting your featured species stickers. This month's sticker, oh, I had some fun with it. It's purdy. It's the same stickers as you're getting in the past, but the color scheme, let's just say, 
It grows in Hawaii, so you figure out what the color scheme will be. And of course, you know, here's my little plug. Thank you to all the, the patrons who support the show. If you want to support the show, go to patreon.com slash lumber update. If you are a walnut tier subscriber, uh, that's $8 a month, you will get your featured species sticker. And this month it will be Koa. I'll be mailing those out uh, middle of the week. And anybody who becomes, uh, who is an active walnut subscriber in the month of September will get their pretty Koa sticker. Commercial aside, let's move on to some questions that we've got this week. Okay, first one comes from John. Um, he says, I made some cherry cabinets about 10 plus years ago. Um, they look great, but as the solid wood cherry has aged beautifully, the quarter inch veneered MDF plywood I used for the door panels looks like the day I finished them. Any knowledge as to why the veneer didn't age? This is a great question, John. And essentially, while veneer is still wood and while plywood is still wood, the engineered nature of it, and especially the very thin nature of those face veneers, means it doesn't really behave like wood anymore. The other thing you have to look at is, yes, it's all solid wood and it's all cross-laminated and everything, but there's a substantial amount of glue in here as well. And frankly, that glue, when you look at how thin the individual plies are, that glue does have a fair bit of bleed through from layer to layer. And as that glue cures and polymerizes, you hit, you end up with kind of a preservative nature to um, the, the plywood as a whole. So when you first, a couple things at play here, the thinner you slice the veneer, the less, the less oil, the less extractives, the less basically chemicals that are in the wood, the less things that can react to the sunlight and um, the less things that will cause it to fade. Throw that preservative nature of essentially the acrylics in the glue and the epoxy, depending on the type of plywood you bought that's in the glue, you will end up with a fair bit of UV protection um, that will prevent that, that um, color change, that oxidization that happens from solid wood, you know, thicker solid wood cherry. The next thing is, as you apply finish, the finish will soak in deeper to a thicker cut of wood, whereas it only soaks in literally skin deep on the face veneer. And then it's got a different species, plus that somewhat moisture barrier layer of all the glue will prevent that finish from slowing down uh, and deepening the, the color absorption, but it also can prevent the oxidization even further. So this doesn't matter whether it's cherry plywood or oak plywood or ebony plywood, you're going to have the same type of situation. If you've got thicker solid wood rails and styles and a veneered uh, plywood uh, floating panel, you're never gonna get that color change quite the same. In fact, a lot of commercial um, companies will specifically add color to their plywood panels in order to darken up the rails and styles, or what you find with like a lot of door companies is they will actually use plywood for the rails and styles uh, or some um, iteration thereof of plywood with the skin over top of it. And that way that thin skin will kind of color and change about the same as the thin, thin skin that's on the panels itself. So it's, it's twofold there. It's the glue kind of quote preserving it, but it's also the thin nature kind of stripping away the wood's ability to change color um, because there's just not as much to chemically react. Um, and, and, and the chromophores that cause that color change are just not present like they are in a thicker solid piece of wood. 
Excellent question. Um, this has actually had that question come up a couple times with different species. And like I said, it's the same. That's the thing with plywood is it will never look the same as thicker solid wood. Even though plywood is still solid wood, it's just solid wood with a bunch of glue. Uh, next question comes from Mark. He says, I've recently been told that select pine is now more expensive than cherry here in the Indiana, Michigan area. Um, Mark, that's not just Indiana, Michigan. It's pretty much nationwide. Is there any truth to this? And if so, do you have an explanation? I have nothing against pine as it has its place, but it seems to be a sad situation if pine value has exceeded that of cherry, which I favor in woodworking projects. So pine is fine. And, you know, I think the pine that people have a problem with is because they're buying big box pine. High quality pine, like regardless of species, Northeastern white pine, Ponderosa pine, Scots pine, like the good quality stuff, fantastic wood to work with. Um, so yes, uh, pine and select pine is more expensive. The key there is the grade, select pine. The majority of pine that's gonna be available is not going to be select. Certainly the species does matter, but pine is um, a defect-ridden tree, knots being defects. Dependent upon the species, some species will be more knotty than others. Um, actually, I, articu I articulated that too much. Knotty, knotty, not naughty. Um, knotty pine, certainly is going to be of a lower grade because there's so many knots in it. Select pine is going to have a, a clear, at least one face clear, and based on pine, it's pretty much gonna be both faces clear. That To get that grade is harder to get and requires a lot more overall material to get to it. So it's pretty much always been more expensive than most of your hardwoods, certainly much more expensive than poplar. Cherry right now is at like a decade long low. Um, cherry just has fallen out of fashion. Cherry's been falling out of fashion for as long as I've been in the lumber business. Because like you, Mark, I love working with cherry and I love building furniture out of cherry. But from a commercial perspective, most people don't use cherries, cherry much. A lot of white woods in, in, in cabinetry is being used these days. And anything that they want that kind of cherry look, it's being created with finish. Um, and cherry, due to a lot of things, availability, size of the lumber that, that, um, that you can get, it's just fallen out of fashion, which has driven the price down. But here's the thing. It's not that unusual to say that pine is more expensive than cherry. I happen to be doing a, his, a history project for Jay Gibson McIlvain right now because we're in our 225th year of business. And when I look at ledgers and records from 1820, Northeastern white pine was more expensive than cherry then. Twice as expensive as cherry, in fact, in 1820. In 1906, Northeastern white pine was 30% more expensive than cherry. So this is not unusual. Cherry falls in and out of fashion pretty readily, and cherry isn't, it can't produce the same widths and lengths that you can produce with pine just because of the way cherry grows. So as it falls, uh, because it ends up being kind of a quote, luxury wood, it is subject to the whims of design, of fashion, and it will come and go. Um, in the 1980s, cherry was a lot more popular. Cherry was also a lot more popular when furniture was a major industry. Furniture making is, is a non-entity in the commercial trade these days. Cabinetry is really one of the only instances where you find cherry being used. And when it is being used, it's often, like our previous question, cherry plywood, 
not solid wood. So again, the highest quality cherry is being peeled for veneers. What's left over is a lesser quality cherry, which doesn't demand the same quality price. So what you're finding out is not a recent thing, nor is it like, you know, certainly 1820, we saw these numbers, but cherry has been down for 20 years at this point. And it is a pretty much at an all time low. Um, it has not recovered. Uh, it didn't really inflate during COVID very much. And the demand is just not there. So it's, it's a variety of factors. But more importantly, Mark, I suggest you don't um, adjust your, your understanding of cherry, but adjust your understanding of pine. I would elevate pine, select pine, in your opinion, in your esteem, because that has always been a highly sought after lumber. Um, Shipbuilding, uh, we've talked about aviation before, spars for wings and things like that, select pine and spruce were used heavily in there. The key was the select nature of it. So interesting stuff, but it does show kind of how as much as things change, they stay the same, um, especially based on some of those historical numbers for lumber. Uh, I may share some more of that in the future, uh, certainly as I dig up more data. I'm in the middle of this research project right now. So uh, I'll try to uh, keep that stuff together and see if we can talk about it in the future, because it's, it's kind of fascinating to see how little has actually changed. Um, certainly inflation has driven prices up, but when you down calculate and try to compare apples to apples uh, without inflation, it's funny, uh, frankly, how little has changed as far as the value of wood from one century to the next. Final question, out of left field here, but this is from Ryan. He says, I have a growing and spreading quickly um, plot of gnarly species of tree called honey locust. Its thorns have to be seen to believe. I've seen a lot of differing opinions on whether it has any valuable uses. Other than making a medieval melee weapon, is this tree good for anything like lumber, firewood, etc.? If not, then I need to find a way to stop it from spreading as its thorns are a serious nuisance. So Ryan, first thing to understand is honey locust and black locust, closely related, but definitely not the same. So make sure if you talk to anybody and, they, and they're saying, oh, locust is good for this, locust is good for that, make sure you understand you're talking about honey locust versus black locust. Black locust has a larger share of the market these days because black locust does not have the thorns, but it also has incredible weather resistance. It is an outstanding exterior wood. It's actually good for ground contact, used for fence posts and things like that get buried in the dirt. Honey locust does not. The difference being honey locust has big wide open pores. Black locust has big pores filled with tylose. So just like white oak and red oak, they're very much the same on a lot of working properties, but white oak is great for exterior because those pores are clogged up with tylose. Red oak doesn't have any tylose and you can blow through it like a straw and blow bubbles in, a, in, in water. Honey locust is the same way. Now, working properties, both of the locusts are quite hard. They can be around 1500 janka hardness. So harder than that of the oaks and harder even than that of the hard maples. Um, ring porous woods, both. Very, very strong, high bending strengths, high rigidity, things like that. But um, because the fact that it doesn't really have that exterior quality, honey locust often gets kind of poo-pooed. Um, honey locust can actually make really, really good lumber. It makes outstanding firewood. The hardness of it um, 
means that it, it burns very, very hot. So you need very little of it to, to heat your house. And that's pretty much what honey locust gets used for now because those thorns and the bark and the mature tree just make it unwieldy to work with. But frankly, once you debark it, you'll find that it's, it's a lovely wood. And honey locust, because it has that lovely honey color to, to its heartwood, whereas black locust is gonna be a little bit more kind of yellow, kind of a bilious green color to it, honey locust is certainly a lot more attractive. The difficulty, of course, when there are thorns that are growing, think of thorns like knots. Um, well, branches. Branches are knots, essentially. Um, as that branch comes off, there's that knot underneath, and to form the knot, all the grain flowing into and out of that knot gets very swirly and kind of difficult to deal with. Thorns are going to be the same way. They're going to form very much the same way, so you're going to get unruly grain around those thorns. Well, the difference between branches, aka knots, and thorns is their um, their number. You know, you're not gonna have nearly as many branches on a tree as you will the thorns on honey locust. So if you imagine something like bird's eye maple, um, that's what the honey locust ends up kind of looking like. Not pretty like bird's eye maple, but swirly grain around all those thorns popping out um, through the bark. So it just ends up being a kind of a difficult wood to work with. It's already very, very hard, but it doesn't have those exterior qualities. So it just kind of gets relegated to firewood. I firmly believe that there's no such thing as a tree that can't be used for lumber. And if you have a lot of it, um, and you have the patience and the Kevlar gloves to deal with the thorns. Once you get rid of those thorns, you're going to have some workable lumber, some very hard lumber that could do some great things. It all, as anything, comes down to can you offset the cost required to deal with those thorns and, and kind of the added step in, in debarking and dethorning um, and, and potential blood loss that's caused from that, can you deal with that and can you still make a profit? But if you're not reselling the lumber, if you're using it for your own benefit, then I say, give it a shot. Just be prepared for a little bit more time to kind of get down to the board level. But yeah, it just so happens um, I was, uh, I had a race this weekend and uh, started on a train platform and flanking the train platform were a bunch of lovely honey locust trees. And at first I thought, oh, those are black locusts. And then I looked a little closer at the, at the, the log or the, the the trunk itself, and you could see all those thorns. And if I could have reached out and touched the tree, I probably would have drawn blood. So yeah, it's a species that doesn't get a lot of play because of the fact that it has those thorns, but primarily because of the fact that it can't really serve as an exterior species. It is invasive just like the black locust, but the black locust has that like practically impermeable nature to water that will always make it win out in the end. And therefore honey locust is the redheaded stepchild. So there we go, Ryan. Good question. I've had that question on honey locust from many of you simply because of its invasive nature. It grows like a weed. A lot of people, if you have one, you have 400 of them. So yeah, no reason it can't be used for lumber. Just be prepared to draw a little bit of blood along the way. So that'll do it for me this week, folks. Thanks as always for listening. Thank you to the patrons who continue to support the show. Look for your pretty Koa stickers to be coming soon. And if anybody out there has experience working with Koa, let me know. I love the stuff, but it's a species of wood that really doesn't get a lot of press. And uh, this is a fishing hole that I am willing to expose its location because I think the tree has a bright future sustainability wise and certainly workability and appearance wise it's something that we need to see more of 
So uh, there we go, folks. Thanks for listening and go buy some hardwood. Go buy some koa if you can find it.